Hello, welcome to the Inquiring Mind podcast with me, Stanley Goldberg. Today, I'll be speaking with H.W. Brands. H.W. Brands is an American historian. He holds the Jake Blanton Senior Chair in History at the University of Texas at Austin, where he earned his PhD in history in 1985. He has authored 30 books on U.S. history. His works have twice been selected as finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. His most recent book is called Our First Civil War, Patriots and Loyalists in the American Revolution, published on November 9th, 2021 by Doubleday. He also has a substack called A User's Guide to History, where you can find some very fascinating thoughts on critical race theory, the teaching of U.S. history in America, and numerous other topics. On this podcast, we discuss the way history is taught in America, how one gets to write 31 books, and numerous other topics on American history. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing on YouTube, as well as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to this podcast. So now, without further delay, I bring you my conversation with the great H.W. Brands. H.W. Brands, welcome to the Inquiring Mind podcast. Uh, before, Glad to be here. Yeah, it's a, it's a real pleasure. Before we get started, and uh, I'm not going to ask for a traditional kind of introduction or anything like that. Uh, you teach at the University of Texas. You, I do. You've taught, you've, you've taught history for a long time. You're the author of 30 books uh, with the 31st, if I'm not mistaken, on the way in November. Yeah, it's, uh, about, it's about that number. Yeah, yeah, there's a new book coming out in November. Yeah. Um, but before that, I found out that you taught high school for nine years. Uh, can you... Tell me what that experience was like and how it maybe taught you uh, to get people to get students is interested in history. Yeah. So my introduction to the profession that I wound up with um, was as a high school teacher. And I started teaching high school when I was uh, a year out of college. I guess I was 23 years old. And I had I'd been a good student when I was in school. I had never really thought seriously about teaching you know, much, but I you know, needed work and I thought, eh, give it a try. And I discovered within a week or so that I liked teaching. I liked being in front of a classroom. I liked engaging young minds in uh, interesting topics, topics that were interesting to me and that I thought I could interest them in. I started off teaching mathematics in part and in very, in, lar in very large part because it was easier to get a math teaching job than it was a history teaching job. And this because a lot of high school principals uh, think that almost anybody can teach history. And this is one of the reasons it's a, it's a common joke among uh, high school teachers and people who are around the high school world that the, whatever the last name of a high school history teacher is, the first name is coach. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, you can take a football coach, a basketball coach, put them in front of the history classroom, give them the, the textbook, let them read a chapter ahead of the students and they're fine. Nobody would do that in mathematics. It's thought that mathematics requires some specialized knowledge. But anyway, so, but I just discovered I like teaching and I taught for, well, I taught a couple of years before I decided to go back to school, but my first decision to go back to school and get a, a master's degree after a bachelor's I had earlier um, was entirely mercenary because I knew I'd get a pay bump if I had an advanced degree. And I went back to graduate school and I kind of liked it. And I thought, okay, well, can I do more of this? And can I continue teaching? I was, I was very uninformed regarding sort of the culture of um, educate, higher education. And I, nobody in my family, and my parents had gone to college, but I didn't know anybody who had been a professor mm -hmm. or anything like that. So I didn't know exactly how you became a professor or what it was like or what was expected. But gradually, I realized that as much as I like teaching high school, and high school teaching is great. And for anybody who thinks that they might want to go into teaching, teach at the high school level um, because you get a lot of teaching and you teach six hours a day. And then eventually, if you wind up teaching the college level, you think you're on vacation because you teach six hours a week or so at the college level. 
Um, and so, you know, I like the teaching, uh, but I, I wanted to move upstream a little bit sort of intellectually because I thought I was interested in engaging young minds, but I wanted a little bit of more, more intellectual feedback than you get, say, from 14 and 15 year olds. Because there's just, you know, not that much they bring to the table. They bring other things to the table, but they, they don't really have the background to have informed discussions on some of the things that I wanted to have informed discussions on. So over time, I, I went back to graduate school a couple of times and I wound up with a PhD in history. And then I, at that point, I was still, I had been teaching high school. I was teaching high school all through graduate school. And then I included teaching community college. So I was teaching at the, at the college level while I was in my PhD program. And, but then since then, I have been teaching sort of uh, at the, the university level. However, I have made a point in teaching incoming students. So every year I teach a large survey class of American history and it starts with the pre-colonial period and goes up to the present. And the great majority of my students are 18 and 19 years old. For many of them in the fall semester particularly, this is their very first college class ever. And they, especially these days with changes in high school curriculums, I really no longer assume they have any particular knowledge of history. They're bright. I teach at the University of Texas. You got to be pretty bright to get into the University of Texas. You have to be a good student. And a lot of my students are international students. So they come from places where they didn't take American history in high school. And so I sort of start them off at the beginning. And this, this imposes certain obligation on me as a teacher that I have to, my courses, my lectures have to be almost self-contained. I don't presume any knowledge on the students when they walk in. And so I have to get I, I like to think, good at explaining. And the fact that I have to cover a lot of ground, you know, all of American history in this two-semester course, I have one semester to, I mean, excuse me, one lecture to deal with the Civil War. So I have to learn to make these decisions about what's important, what you put in, what you leave out. And what you leave out is fully as important as what you put in. And so I find, and I'll add this, that when I started teaching high school, I was 23 years old. I was five years older than my students. Now I'm considerably much older than five years older than my students. They're the same age that they were basically, I'm, I'm, and I'm older. Um, and so my students in many ways are a model or a stand-in for the readers of the books that I write because I write books and primarily and for a long time, I've been writing books for non-specialists. At the very beginning, when you're in graduate school, when you're first trying to get a job and get tenure and all that stuff, you write for the specialists. And then you do assume a certain amount of knowledge. And the books tend to be more argumentative. That's what academics do. They argue. And there's less emphasis on the narrative of just telling what happened right. in an engaging way. And so I find myself for these last 20 years or so, I teach to essentially the same audience that I write to with a fundamental exception. And that is, it is a known fact, and I've observed it again and again, that a majority of my readers, my readers, the people who buy my books and read my books, they are 40 years older than my students. And you know, this is just kind of natural. History does not come readily. It doesn't come naturally to 19-year-olds. When you're 19, you should be looking ahead. You don't want to be looking back. The longer you spend on earth, the more you realize that you know more of your life is behind you and you spend more time looking in the rearview mirror than you know out the out the, the windshield. Um, but nonetheless, in each case, I am trying to convey my interest in history, my engagement in history to an audience of people who have no specialized interest, certainly no professional interest in the subject. Just I you know, sort of think of them as the, the interested, intelligent lay reader, lay student. And that's the one that I'm trying to engage. Yeah, I, I've always felt when I, when I was in high school, which is not that long ago, um, there are two kinds of students when it came to history, and there's no in between. There's one that loved history like myself and was always trying to learn new facts or, or whatnot. And then there are the people that said something that I, I still find mind boggling, and they said history is boring. And I guess the older I've gotten and the more I've kind of read or listened to people talk about history, uh, David McCullough once said that uh, history is not about dates and provisos and, you know, facts and figures. It's about people. You know, he, he always cites Jefferson, uh, Jefferson's line uh, in the course of human events. So human being the, the centerpiece of kind of history. Uh, yet it, I, I find that it's not, taught that way it's taught as a collection of facts and it's taught as 
this happened, then that that happened, then this happened, then this happened, and then well, here we are. Uh, so it's not a very engaging. So what you're doing by writing popular books or more to a popular audience uh, is actually a gift to society because you're you're trying to get people to be interested in history. And I think the more historically literate people are, uh, the more I don't want to say rational, but better the better the decisions they make in the current day. Do you find that to be true? Well, I certainly agree with the last part of what you said, that the more we know about history, the better decisions we're likely to make regarding present events. Mm -hmm. Because if we don't take advantage of history, it's as though each generation has to reinvent the wheel. The problems that we were dealing with, that we deal with, every generation deals with, are quite similar to problems in the past. The details differ, but they often reflect the same underlying values and arguments. So in any given society, is greater weight placed on the rights of the individual or on the responsibilities of the community? So this is one that I pose to my students in one form or another all the time. You know, there are basically two rules of thumb for explaining how the individual relates to the larger society. One rule is the individualistic ethos summarized as it's every man for himself. And the other one is sort of the communitarian view in that we're all in this together. And in fact, you can use these two rubrics as sort of ends of the spectrum, and you can examine different societies at any given time. So in China, Japan, other countries of East and Southeast Asia, there has historically been more of an emphasis on the communitarian view. In part, this reflects that they've had outside enemies, that they live you know, crammed into a relatively small area, and what any individual does affects a lot of people around them. And so the tolerance of societies like that for responsibilities, for duties to the larger community, starting with the family, but to the larger society, is something that has just been learned over generation and generation. And then at the other extreme, um, sometimes anthropologists call this the difference between sort of uh, tight and loose societies. So tight societies are ones where your bonds to the larger community are a really big deal and you you go against those only at your individual peril. Right. Peril to your reputation, sometimes to your job. Um, and then there are more individualistic societies. And these are like the United States. And in, some of this simply reflects the fact that in the United States, uh, historically, compared to countries like Japan and China, there's simply a lot of room. And you know, I live in Texas. Texas is a, the, the, most populous, the second most populous state in the union. But you can drive across you know, vast reaches of Texas, and there's almost nobody there. And so there's room for individuals to exercise their individuality. So there's that part of it. But in terms of your, your observation, that history is often seen as boring. Um, first of all, I have to say that I have nothing but the greatest respect for my high school teacher colleagues in this teaching profession, because by and large, they do a wonderful job. They are bound by certain requirements. And the requirements are often stated by state boards of education, that by the people who prescribe their curricula. And the easiest way to write a curriculum is to list all the things that are going to be covered. And the best way, the easiest way to avoid a big debate over do I, do, should the students be required to learn this or that is, oh, make them learn both. And so in essence, what the teachers have to do is they have to check off what amounts to a, a long list of encyclopedia topics. And there's no formula that's better guaranteed to just drain the interest value out of that. Fortunately, I teach college students. And I say fortunately, I'm, I, I used to teach high school students. So I, I made a choice between the two. And I knew that when I got to teaching college students, effectively, nobody's looking over my shoulder. However, I encounter the same thing that you described because on the, the opening, the first day of class each semester, I ask my students and my, I, my standard class, my standard large class has 480 students. And this is in essence, a required course of all, of all undergraduates at the University mm -hmm. of Texas. And so I ask them, how many of you are here because you have to be? And 95% of the students raise their hand. These mm -hmm. are chemists, these are engineers, these are mathematicians, these are biologists, these are not history majors. And so, okay, I understand, you know, this is, um, you're required to take the course. I explained to them why they're required to take the course. And that is because the state legislature of Texas in its wisdom, and I would be the first to say that the state legislature of Texas, like most legislatures are not always wise, but this is one where I really agree with them. 
that if you are going to be a citizen in this American Republic, it behooves you to know something about the history of this thing that you're taking over. We don't let people on the roads you know, with a, a car um, before they've had some driver's ed. So the course I teach is driver's ed for citizens of the American Republic. There's that. And, and so, but, but once having ascertained what got them into my classroom, then I take it as the challenge to dispel any notions that history is boring. And when I lead off with something like the sex lives of Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, okay, that gets their attention. And I make a point, I make a point of injecting them or people very much like them into the history that I explain. So fairly early in the first semester, we talk about the American Revolution. And I point out that the soldiers of history, the warriors of history, were people very much about their ages. It's you know, young people, young men in particular, who go to war. And so I said, you know, in the, the American Revolution, in fact, the, the next book that I've got coming out in November is on this very subject. When the colonies got into dispute with Britain in the 1770s, people had to decide to make a choice. Do you remain loyal to the British government or do you break away? Do you embrace the revolution? Do you commit treason against the British empire? And, and on which side do you take up arms? Because I make this point in my forthcoming book, which I call our first civil war. The American revolution was as much a civil war, a war among Americans as it was a war of Americans and the British because Americans were fighting among themselves as to whether they ought to remain part of the British empire or break away. And I put the question to them because I said, if you had been 18, 19 years old in 1776 and living in any one of the states, uh, you would have had to decide, do you take up arms against your government or you side with your government? What do you do? And I yeah, make them think about it. And in fact, very often, one of the first essays they write for me for the course is on one version or other of this very subject. The first half of the semester ends with the Civil War. And I put them in the same situation. So I teach in Texas. So I say, you were living in Texas in 1861. And there's a, there's a convention called to determine whether Texas shall secede from the Union or not. Which side do you take? And I sort of, I walk them through the decision, but I also given them increasing amounts of information because one of the points that I want them to realize is that history is fully as complicated as the present is. And human life by its very nature is full of complications, contradictions, and decisions that have to be made with imperfect information. And so I, I put them sort of right there. I tell them the story about how Benjamin Franklin had to make up an excuse at the age of 17, a year younger than most of my students, in order to flee Boston. He was getting tired of being a bound laborer to his older brother. And you know, just getting my students used to the idea that by law, you could be required to take the orders of your older brother. And his father had signed these indentures. And so for seven years, he was in essence the, the bound laborer of his older brother. And they would get in fights and everything like brothers do. And Ben Franklin decided this is, you know, I can't do this anymore. So I got to get out of town. But he couldn't tell his father because his father was the one who had signed him into this. And he couldn't tell the sheriff or anybody like that because he'd be arrested if he tried to get away. So he had to make up this story. And the story he made up, and I said, okay, so this is, this is the story that Benjamin Franklin made up. He had a friend of his go down to the waterfront in Boston and find a ship's captain who looked like he might be oh, sort of a man of the world or friendly or something like that. And the friend was going to tell the ship's captain that I have a friend without naming Franklin, but he was referring to Franklin. I have a friend who's gotten himself in a fix. And the captain says, well, so what's the fix? Well, the fix is that he got a girl pregnant and the girl's family is trying to make him marry the girl, but he doesn't love her and he doesn't want to marry the girl. So he needs to get out of town without anybody finding out. Uh -huh. And the ship's captain was maybe had been in a situation like this himself, but he sort of nodded and said, all right, well, okay. Um, tell your friend to come down here, you know, 
after dark tonight and I'll look the other way and he can stow away on board and, and I'll only discover him after it's too late to turn back. So this is sort of the human element that often gets left out of, well, the history workbook pages that students in high school have to fill out. And I'm, I don't want to sound immodest in this, but it is very common for my students in the end of semester evaluations to write a note saying, I came into this class thinking that history was boring and it was the most interesting class I had all semester. Now, I take that with a certain grain of salt. Um, they're anonymous, so they're, you know, they're not trying to yeah. cozy up anything, but I realized that, yeah, I used to teach math and I thought I taught a fairly interesting math class, but math is you know, kind of dry compared to just the, you know, the comedy, the tragedy, just what human affairs is like. So there are enough good stories in history that if you simply give them a chance, you get swept up in them. Yeah, I also think that uh, by teaching even a basic level of history or, or you know, having a survey course in, in American history, you see how past events tie into current events. And um, I, I listened to one of your past lectures where you said that you require a lot of your students to um, talk about current, or at least while they take your class to read uh, current events or keep up with current events. And I think that's, that's really important. Uh, one of the interesting lectures I saw of yours uh, was from over a decade ago, you gave a speech or a, sorry, a, a lecture about the Gilded Age. And at that time, I think you wrote a book about the Gilded Age. And uh, you were talking about the nature of capitalism in the United States, where in, in the beginning of the 1800s, uh, dem America was democratic or uh, democracy was in full flow, but it wasn't capitalist by, you know, because most people worked on their farms or, or did whatever they did, and they worked for themselves. Then with the Gilded Age, which is the period after the Civil War, um, a lot of people went to work for somebody and people became lifetime employees some, at times of, you know, some steel factory or, or whatnot. What I found interesting in that talk is that it seems to me that in the 21st century, that's we're going back. So we're now in an environment where a lot of people do still work for companies. But it's now becoming more and more of a time where people are beginning to work for themselves. Do you see that uh, reversal in, in uh, capitalist behavior? Well, the first thing I have to say is that I'm very often asked to sort of shed historical perspective on current events. And I say, yeah, I'm, I'm fine uh, explaining or trying to explain how we got from some time in the past to where we are right now. But please don't ask me to predict the future because historians, um, you know, we have no more insight into yeah. what's going to happen tomorrow than anybody else. If we did, we would all apply it to the stock market and we'd all be rich. And we historians are not uniformly rich. Um, but there's a reason for this. And the reason for this is, I, I will say this, that the student of history, whether a professional student of history like me or an amateur student of history, somebody who simply reads history books, can put himself or herself in a position where whatever happens next will not be a particular surprise. Because one of the things that history does for you, it gives you an idea of what the, the possible outcomes of any particular event are. You, you, you can't, I can't necessarily say whether the thing that happens tomorrow is gonna be either definitely A, B, C, D, or E but I'm pretty sure it's not gonna be F or G or H or whatever else, because mm. we've been in situations like this. The, the basic conundrum is this, that things that happen today are like things that happened in the past, but they're never identical to things that happened in the past. And so we never know until the event plays out whether the similarities or the differences are the more important at any given time. But history will teach us, first of all, not to be surprised, because 
we've been through situations like this in the past and it could have gone this way or that and or maybe this time it'll go that way or this. The other thing that history should do for us, I think if there's a single lesson and it's more of a, a moral lesson than an intellectual lesson is it, history should teach us humility because there is a strong tendency to think in every generation that history was leading up to us. Mm -hmm. And we, in some way or another, are at the apex of historical development or evolution or moral you know, enlightenment or something like this. And so there's a tendency to sort of look back on the past, but also to look down on the past. And to the extent that the past was different than the present, we sort of think of oh, those poor benighted people who came before us or those evil people who came before us. But in fact, there is absolutely no reason to think that our generation is more inherently moral than previous generations, or for that matter, vice versa. Um, things change, uh, practices change. Maybe It's possible maybe to say that society or culture evolves to become progressively more moral. I'm not even absolutely convinced of this, but, but for example, we no longer practice human sacrifice. And human sacrifice was a you know, really common thing a thousand years ago, 2000 years ago. And, and when it was this common thing, nobody thought much of it. Of course, that's what we do. Now, this is not to say that people uh, wanted to be sacrificed as humans. No, no, but bad things happen to people. And it you know, could be that you're the one they chose. And you know, okay, you're tough luck. But, you know, we, we deal with things that are bad that, that happen to people, but we don't, at, at this point today, we don't necessarily blame people for this. So for example, people um, contract cancer and die of it and nobody blames anybody for it. There's a little bit of, okay, if you smoke and you get lung cancer, well, maybe you're partly to blame for that, but there are, we still live with many things that are beyond our control. And okay, we just, Take that for granted. Now, it's entirely possible that 100 years from now, we'll figure out a cure or a prevention for cancer. And then people will look back and, boy, that must have been terrible to live with the threat of cancer or, or Alzheimer's disease or something like this. Um, and so it's really important to remember that, and this is an exercise I actually require of my students every semester, to try to imagine what we are doing today that our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren will say, how in the world could you do such a thing? Because, and, and I hope that my great-grandchildren will take that view of things that I'm doing today, because it will mean that somehow we have made moral progress. Sometimes I use the example of, meat. I eat meat. I'm not yeah. a vegetarian. I eat meat and you know I don't feel great about it. I sort of, whenever I, come across an expose of conditions in slaughterhouses, I quickly turn the page because I don't want to be reminded of this. On the other hand, I don't feel so badly about it that I stop eating meat entirely. Now, and I sort of, I rationalize it that humans evolved as omnivores. We eat meat and eat provides certain yeah. nutrients that are come in a better form than other things. Um, and, you know, and then I just go on about my business. Now, I think it is entirely possible that within 20 or 30 years, scientists, food scientists are going to figure out a way of manufacturing meat out of stem cells or something like that in the lab. And so you'll get you know, real chicken, but no chickens had to die to eat your chicken tenders or you know, no cows for your Big Mac or something like that. And my great grandchildren will you know, ask me if I'm still around. They will say, well, grandpa, you tore dead animals alive with your teeth. That's gross. That's horrible. That was evil. Those poor animals. And so, and we evolved, you know, almost in our lifetime. So we don't eat horses anymore in the United States. Um, when I was a kid, people ate horse meat, but we just decided, okay, we don't need it. And, oh, you know, those cute horses running around and everything like that, you don't eat them. And so, um, it's important, I think, to get a historical perspective to remind ourselves that, you know, we're not intrinsically any more moral than the people who came before us. We've just figured out ways of doing things differently and to maybe ease our consciousness on certain practices that seem necessary, even if they were distasteful or evil in one way or another. So slavery, for example, 
Slavery was something that George Washington and Thomas Jefferson considered to be a necessary evil. They thought it was evil. They wished that there was no slavery in this new United States, but they inherited the institution of slavery. Well, our country as a whole, through you know, hit and miss and eventually the Civil War, figured a way out of slavery. And so it's, it's easy for us now to say, oh boy, they were horrible people because they owned slaves. Well, they weren't horrible people. They were in this situation where slavery was, well, you know, had been around from time immemorial and nobody particularly wanted to be a slave, but, you know, that was unfortunate things happened to people. So if it's, there's this thing that I sometimes refer to as the, the moral narcissism of the present. And we think, okay, it's all about us. Well, it's not. And so if we spend time sort of honestly with history, we realize that, oh yeah, okay, well, they were struggling with issues just like we're struggling with issues. A lot of people sort of go searching in history for confirmation of um, a clear-cut view of good and evil. And one of my minor missions in life is to explain it's not like that. You know, the history is more complicated than you think. In fact, I have this list of things that I sort of, well, half-jokingly call Brands's laws of history. And Brands's first law of history is that there are no laws of history, uh, not like physics, laws of yeah. physics, uh, but there are patterns. But Brands's second law is it's complicated. It's more complicated than you think, regardless of how complicated you think it is. It's more yeah. complicated than that. And that's at the heart of history. Interesting. Um... You've also, like, throughout your career, you've written, obviously, I mentioned a wide variety of books, uh, some about, uh, you know, times like the gold rush, capitalism in America, stuff like that. Uh, but you've also written your fair share of biographies, Franklin, Grant, Reagan, Jackson, Roosevelt. Uh, I, have, I have your Roosevelt book here. There you go. Okay. Uh, right under me. But how do you... How do you settle on a topic when, when, you know, maybe you come across something and you decide that this is what I'm going to write about? And then what is your writing process like? And let me, before you start uh, describing that, because 31 books, uh, and you're, you're a fairly young man, is, is highly impressive because most people can't write one. So how do you write 31? And, and they're all good. So well, the first thing I'll say is the first one's the hardest. And the first one is the hardest because you have to convince yourself you can actually do it. But to aspiring writers, I pose a couple of questions. One is, do you like writing? And there are a lot of people who like to imagine themselves as having written a book. They, they like to think of themselves as a published author, but they confess they don't particularly like the process of writing. And I tell them, take up another hobby, you know, take up another line of work, because unless you like doing it, you're just in for a lot of annoyance, aggravation, pain, all this stuff. I remember I was having a chat with a graduate student at the University of Virginia some years ago. I was there to give a talk. And this young man, well, he was probably 30 years old. He uh, was explaining that he was just about finishing up his dissertation. And he said, boy, I'm so glad because it has been, oh, it's just been murderous. I can pull in teeth writing this thing. And I said, I just met the guy. And I said, excuse me, I just met you. I really don't know you. But you seem like an intelligent person and a very capable person. So let me ask you, why in the world did you choose this career path? Because this thing of writing history books is what you signed on for. And if you don't like it, why do it? You know, you could probably be really good at various other things. Go do, so go do those other things. So part of the answer to your question is, if you like doing it, then it doesn't seem like work most of the time. I mean, there are certain parts of making a book that, that even I don't particularly like. I don't like proofreading when you don't have really room to change much and you just have to go over and look for mistakes. But for the rest, I like the challenge of learning about a topic that I don't know enough to write a book about. So just I get books out of the library and I buy books and I learn new stuff. 
And I still really like learning new stuff. And then, and then there's the challenge of, okay, taking this thing that I've learned, figuring out what I find interesting in it. And can I convey that interest to somebody else? Because it has been my experience first with teaching, but then with writing, that if you can demonstrate your own interest in this subject, you're halfway to conveying that interest to somebody else. Because if, if you have a certain credibility with my students, for example, and I get interested in this thing, well, they're kind of tempted to say, well, if Brands is interested in it, maybe you know, I'd be interested in it too. So there's that. Then there's the craft aspect of, okay, how do I take these pieces of the historical puzzle? Because no book can say everything about a subject. You have to decide what to say, what to leave out. How can I fit the pieces together in an engaging way? And then sort of at the, the basic level, okay, how can I write this paragraph? What goes in this paragraph? And all those aspects of the writing craft, I enjoy. I'd write down to the paragraph. I, I think of writing a paragraph as, as, as kind of like carpentry, where you're trying, you got this sort of this raw wood and you're trying to fashion it into something. You're trying to make the pieces fit together. And so I enjoy all of that. And so when people ask me kind of the nuts and bolts of my writing process, when do you write? How long do you write? Do you have a word quota that you write each day? And I, I say, I actually don't have answers to any of those questions because I don't pay any attention to those. When I am engaged in a project, I just, whenever I have time, I, I write because I enjoy doing it. If this weren't my profession, it would be my hobby. I'm really lucky that my hobby has become a profession. And so this is, this is what I do. And so uh, it helps, I think, a little bit that I have a relatively short attention span because if I have 20 minutes, I can make good use of 20 minutes. I have colleagues, fellow writers, who at least say that they require at least a block of four hours before they can really get anything done. Or they require a week of spring break or summer vacation or a year sabbatical or something like that. And every time I hear that, and I, you know, I don't mean to asperse my friends and, and colleagues, but I reflect that there is no occupation that provides more excuses not to do what you profess to be doing than writing, because you can always come up with an excuse not to write. There is something else going on, or I need to get another book, or this, that, or the other thing. And this is especially true of academic historians. I have great respect for my colleagues in the academic world, but I can always say, oh, I need to rewrite that lecture, or I've got to go to department meetings, or I have to do this, or grade essays, or direct dissertations, or something like that. There's always an excuse not to do it. And if you're one of those people who is sort of beguiled by these temptations not to do it, well, it really comes from the fact that if you really don't like doing what you're doing, you're going to succumb to the temptations. On the other hand, if you do like doing what you're doing, then the temptations, they're simply going to be lost on you. So the first thing is um, decide really whether you like it or not. And if you like it, go ahead. If you don't like it, find something else to do because there are other hobbies that you'll find more rewarding. The second thing is, and this is going to, I know this takes some people by surprise when they first hear me say it. And that is that sign up to teach history because, I'm, in fact, I'm often asked, okay, you have a, a full-time job teaching history. You've got a full teaching load. And at the University of Texas, we actually make a point. Everybody, beginning professors and you know, full professors and down professors and all this, they all, we all teach the same course load. Actually, the senior professors usually teach more than the very beginners. We give the beginners a little time off to get their footing. But... I find that the biggest help to my writing books is to my, is my teaching because, and, and this is because I made this conscious decision to teach across the breadth of American history. So regardless of what aspect of American history I decide to write about, I have been teaching about that subject now for 35 years because I started teaching an introductory survey of American history when I was 25 years old. And so I've been doing this for a while. And so I know what the broad outlines of the story are 
about five or six years ago, I published a biography of Ulysses Grant, the Civil War general, president of the United States during Reconstruction. And I knew 80% of the Grant story simply from my teaching before I decided to write a book about him. So what I had to do was figure out what the, the rest of the 20% was. And so I started reading Grant's letters, his civil war orders, his speeches, this kind of thing. And that got me closer to the man himself. And then, and then what I had to do, I had to make a, an artistic literary decision. So how do I approach this? What's, what's the storyline that I find? Because I liken, I liken any period of history to when I was a kid, my grandparents had a house on the slopes of Mount Hood. And there were rivers that ran off of Mount Hood. And the rivers often had winding channels where the river, especially during, well, during the, the spring runoff would be full and it would cover up the whole riverbed. But by the end of the summer, the river was down to a relative trickle and it would, it would wind through this large field of boulders. And so we used to play tag. I and my siblings used to play tag on these boulder fields. And you'd figure out, you'd be on one side of the riverbank and you'd see this point on the other side that you try to get to. And you had to sort of pick your boulder, jump from this one to that one, 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 until you found your way across. And I liken figuring out how to tell the story in this case of Ulysses Grant. You know, which boulders do I choose? I'm not going to try to cover every boulder in that river bed. No, just certain ones. And they have to, they have, to have a logical progression to them. And they, they have to add up to something. Now, in, I mentioned that I alluded to this earlier, in the field of academic history, the argument that you make is at least as important as the information you convey. Now, basically in any work of history, and this actually applies beyond the field of history, but in any work of history, certainly, there are two elements to what this written object, the book contains. There's the story, you could call that the narrative, and then there's the argument. Sometimes this is called the thesis or the, you know, the, the point you're trying to make, the moral of the story. And when you are writing for an academic audience, these are specialists. They know most of the information. So you can't emphasize the story, the narrative. You have to focus on the argument. And the argument is, okay, Ulysses Grant was the best, worst, uh, third best president. He was a uh, better general, worse general than Robert E. Lee or something like this. Because the argument is sort of what key, keeps the world of academic history going. Uh, there's not that much new stuff that comes out on the Civil War that if we were required to publish simply new information on the Civil War, there wouldn't be any jobs for Civil War historians. But, you know, we, we argue this stuff and there's merit in it because much of the present generation, every generation looking back, they don't want to know all the information about this, that, or the other thing. They want to know what's the meaning of it? What's the moral? What's the takeaway? But anyway, so when you're writing for the academic specialists, you make more of the argument and less of the narrative because they already know the narrative and you have to highlight your argument. But when you're writing for a general audience, the general argument, the audience is very much less interest in the arguments among the, the academics. So you can focus on the narrative and spend less time and, and give less attention or less primacy to the, the argument. Now you still, I think, you, it behooves you to give the reader a framework sort of for understanding what you're saying. But it can be, I think it should be, um, less of you are gonna beat your head, beat the reader over the head with this argument and just let the argument evolve out of the narrative because you gotta hook them on the story. You hook them on the story and then you can, then you can get across the point you're trying to make. But, so your, your question was sort of, you know, what's my approach? What's the way I go about this? Well, sort of that's generally it. And the last thing that I'll say is that if you've never written a book, you know, writing a book seems like a really big deal, but really a book, the typical book is made up of maybe eh, six, 700 paragraphs. Okay, 700 paragraphs, right? Two paragraphs a day. And, you know, in a year you got a book. So it's... Once you've convinced yourself that you can do it, then if you like doing it, then you go back and do it again. The, the second book is probably, I don't know, 30% easier than the first book. And the third book is maybe 10% easier than that. And I'm not going to say that it ever is, you know, just a snap, um, but at least once you know what you're doing and once you've convinced yourself, yeah, I can get to the end, then it's a matter of just doing it. And, you know, this is writing books and teaching. This is what I do. So. I, I'm not impressed 
by the fact that I've written the books that I've written. Of course, you know, this is what I do and I've been doing it for a long time. So yeah, that's what, this the, what I'd be doing. What, what's the 31st book like? If the first book is, <laughs> uh, and the second book is uh, 30% easier and then so, so on and so forth. What's the 31st one like? Uh, there reaches a point where the, the returns are diminishing. So I, I'm not getting any faster or more efficient, um, except for uh, sort of outside elements. In the time that I've been writing books, the availability of resources has become much greater and much more efficient than it was. And so, for example, this book that I'm writing, that I've finished writing, it's going to be published in a couple of months, is on the American Revolution. When, if I had written this book in the 1980s, when I wrote my first book, all the research that I would do would have required numerous trips to Washington, D.C., to the National Archives and the Library of Congress, because they held the papers of various people that figure in this, and various other sort of repositories, the papers of Benjamin Franklin, uh, a large collection are at the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia. Right. In the last 10 or 15 years, essentially all of the papers of that founding generation have been digitized and they're made available online. I had an early introduction to sort of how this might play out. I wrote a biography of Benjamin Franklin. I wrote it in the last three years or so of the 1990s. So we're into the computer age, but the, the internet had, was still in its infancy. And as I was working my way slowly through the papers, the printed and still manuscript papers of Benjamin Franklin, I caught wind that there was this project to digitize the papers of Benjamin Franklin. And uh, the Packard Foundation, which has been founded by David Packard of Hewlett Packard, the mm -hmm. tech company, they had actually scanned, or maybe they, in those days they may have keyed in, they probably keyed in the, the papers, all of the letters of Benjamin Franklin that had been compiled in this you know, 50 volume, eh, 40 volumes collection by the American Philosophical Society and Yale University Press. And they had put it on the, the medium of choice in those days was a CD, CD-ROM. And so it was on something like two CDs. And I heard that there were these CDs around that had the digitized version of this. I thought, oh my gosh, this would be so great. Because if I wanted to find that letter in which Franklin said, nothing life is sure but death and taxes, I had to just you know read through all the pages. But I could have done a, a keyword search and found it. Well, the... I kept getting the runaround from the, the Packard people and the folks who there, this disc was out there somewhere, but it wasn't you know, where I could get my hands on it until I guess maybe I had to prove that I was serious about this or something because I'd written the whole darn book and it hadn't quite been published yet, but I had spent years on this. And finally, one of the archivists at the Phil American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia came, you know, saw me and I was there from one of my, well, I guess the last of several visits kind of motioned me to come over and he said, uh, I want to show you something. And uh, so he brought out these, these discs, these yeah. CD-ROMs. He said, this is it. I said, can I look at them? Yeah. yeah. So I, I looked at them and as I say, the book was already written. So it didn't do me any good for actually writing the book. But as I read them, I thought, oh my gosh, this is the future. And this is going to make the work of historians so much easier. Now, this book that I wrote on the American Revolution, I wrote most of it during COVID time when all of the archives, most of the libraries were closed. And I have colleagues who write on subjects that haven't been digitized yet. And for many of them, the research projects just ground to a halt. They simply couldn't do anything. They couldn't travel to these places in the first place. And so I was very fortunate in that I had chosen this topic. Now, when I say I, I was very fortunate, I one of the reasons I chose this topic is because I had a hunch, you know, something might, I mean, I didn't predict COVID, but I'm to the stage of my career where the idea of spending weeks in a dusty, dark library doesn't appeal to, my, to me as much as it used to. And so if, I, if there's everything that I need and I can get it simply on the internet, well, okay, I'm gr very grateful for that. 
Yeah, uh, a lot of historians, you know, I mentioned David McCullough, uh, Robert Caro, people like that. They like to they emphasize kind of walking the field, right? They 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 like to go where the person has been, almost smell what they smell, you know, walk the same steps. Uh, do you find? I feel like I know the answer to this because, uh, yeah. But I'll still ask: Do you find that you have to do that, or do you think it's unnecessary? Far be it from me to question the the approach of Dave McCulloch and Robert Carroll, yeah. uh, two of the finest historians, biographers uh, operating in America today, and they they do fantastic work. I would say that I am less taken by the mystique of standing in the footsteps of the people that I'm writing about than they are. Uh, I think they're sort of older school than, older school than I am, but I've done this actually. I've, I've tried it on various projects. And so I have, when I was writing about, you know, I had occasion in my book on Franklin to write about the Salem witch trials. And so I went to Salem. Okay, well, you know, there you are in Salem. And you can see a couple of buildings left over from that era. But then, you know, over your shoulder is the freeway traffic and, you know, down the street is a Walmart. (laughs) And, and I came to realize that, you know, maybe, maybe there was some, well, for certain things, for certain things that wasn't particularly necessary because I, I would actually go through the effort of going there and then ask myself after I wrote the book, so what did I get out of it? I got out maybe sort of one sentence of general description about what Salem must have looked like in the 1690s or something like that. And honestly, I discovered that, at least for my purposes, I got more accurate descriptions from eyewitnesses from the 1690s. Because what Salem looked like in the 1990s is, as I say, you know, nothing like what Salem looked like in the 1690s. But if somebody was there in the 1690s and said, this is what it looks like. So, and this also reflects the fact that what really hooked me on history was eyewitnesses account, eyewitness accounts. Before I became a teacher, I was uh, for a while a traveling salesman and my territory was the American West. And so I had these long drives across the West. And before I would leave home, I would raid my grandfather's library. My grandfather had all sorts of history books. And the ones that intrigued me the most were a collection that were published under the name of Hubert Howe Bancroft, sort of the great historian of the American West. And the books were not only by Bancroft, but what they really were, were almost sort of information dumps out of diaries and letters and journals of travelers across the American West in earlier times. And I found that those were absolutely mesmerizing to me because I wanted to hear from somebody who had been there, who had seen it himself or herself. I didn't want to hear it filtered through the historian. And I came to think of, well, in fact, so I teach graduate students as well as undergraduates. And for the graduate students who who are in effect apprentice historians, it's important to keep in mind the distinction between what historians call primary sources and secondary sources. And the primary sources are stories, are, are sources that are generated by the participants or eyewitnesses to the events that they're describing. So they're contemporary to the moment. And secondary sources is everything else, what the historians have to say afterwards. And I was just very intrigued by the primary sources. And I explained to my students that you should rely on primary sources too, because to use the, the terminology of a courtroom trial, And in many ways, what historians do, they put their sources on trial. Um, It's the distinction between eyewitness testimony and hearsay, because hearsay is what the third party is saying about it. And in most courtrooms, that's not allowed. You can hear testimony of eyewitnesses. Those are the primary sources. So I have found it to be more useful to identify the sources of people who are actually there. Now, having said that, I've written a couple of books on the American West. And there is something that I got out of my numerous trips across the American West. So my territory, I sold cutlery for a company based in Portland, Oregon. And my territory went from Portland all the way to Denver in Eastern Colorado. And so I made numerous trips across 
that patch of the country. And I did get just a sense of the great open spaces, the geography. And in that case, I was fully aware that you can be standing on the side of Interstate 84, or as it used to be called Interstate 80N before they renumber it. And if, you're, if you have your back to the freeway, you can look out at the Sawtooth Mountains of Idaho. And what you see is very much what the trappers who went through the Snake River Valley saw because it really hasn't changed that much. So in that one area of my historical writing in particular, sort of the being there, uh, traveling along that path had an effect. I wrote a book about the settling of Texas, the settling by Anglos of Texas. Actually, I go beyond that. And I was uh, struck. So sort of the father of modern Texas is Stephen F. Austin. Stephen F. Austin, who led a, a colony basically of Americans, 300 families into what was then Mexican Texas in the 1820s. And Austin kept a diary. And in the diary, Austin referred to the Texas landscape, the Texas countryside as beautiful. And it so happened when I was writing the book and for some years before and a few years after, I was teaching at Texas A&M University, which is just east of the Brazos River and Texas and Austin's colony was on the Brazos River. And I was, but I was living in Austin. So twice a week, I'd go back and forth um, between Austin and College Station. And I was traveling the identical route that Austin described on his first trip to Texas, because it's the Highway 21 is the old El Camino Rail, the, the, mm -hmm. the Spanish road into Texas. And I looked out on the, what I was seeing, and I realized that hadn't changed that much from Austin's day. And I said, you know, I think this landscape is pleasant enough, but I don't think I'd call it beautiful. So the question I pose to myself, and I pose this of history all the time, what was he thinking? You know, what was Austin seeing that I wasn't seeing? Because this is one where having been there and having been in the footsteps of this person was actually potentially quite misleading. And it can be, and this is a problem because the eyes of Austin were a different pair of eyes than my eyes. And what I eventually realized was that Austin was looking on this countryside as potential farmland. And it's really good farmland, especially if you get in the, the black soil of the Brazos River. Well, we live in, for most of us, a post-agricultural age. In Austin's day, everybody was a farmer. Certainly everybody coming to Texas was a farmer. And, in, in, and so if the land was fertile, if the land was productive, then the land was beautiful. I grew up in Oregon. You know, I, when I think of beautiful landscapes, I think of you know, snow-covered volcanoes like Mount Hood or Crater Lake or something like that. Ironically, you know, that, that is what Austin's generation, that generation is called deserts. And they did because they were deserted of humans. And they didn't think they were particularly attractive because that was of a generation that had to make their living from the land. And you can't make your living from the snow-covered slopes of Mount Hood or the depths of Crater Lake. So we look on landscapes as tourists, but they looked on landscapes as producers. And so this is one where actually walking the path of those historical characters misled me rather than led me. Yeah. Uh, so we have a few minutes left before we have to wrap up. Uh, there's so many questions I still have to sure. want to ask, but at a different time, we can do this again in the future. Um, I also want to mention, before I get to my last two questions that I ask of every guest, that you have a Substack that you write, I do. Uh, which is really good. And there are some really interesting pieces about free speech, uh, uh, critical race theory that I, uh, that I read, and one about inequality in America, which was also fascinating. So I, I think people should definitely give it a read. Um, and I'll link all of that to good. the description of this video. So before we wrap up, I asked two questions of all my guests, and that's the first, and I'm going to bundle them together. You answer in whatever order you please. Okay. The first one is what gives you hope for the future? It could be as general or as specific as you wish. 
And the second one is what are five books, fiction or nonfiction that you would recommend to people? Okay. I'm going to beg off on the last question because on the second part of the question, because I have discovered over the years that tastes in reading are very idiosyncratic and I've had any number.